you to open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Ephesians chapter 3. And this evening we're come to the, the closing verses of this chapter. And what the Apostle Paul does in these last two verses is just give a great, swelling, exultant words of praise for his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You remember that we've been studying for the past few weeks in this third chapter about this powerful prayer. And these words come at the end of this powerful prayer. And and the prayer was so powerful that we had to take several weeks really just to explore all the aspects of what Paul was saying. Paul's prayer began in verse number 14 and all the way down through the 19th verse. Every verse and every petition of that prayer is a step that climbs higher and higher until finally you come to verse number 19 where Paul writes, "...that ye might be filled with the fullness of God." And when we get to these last two verses of chapter 3, it's almost like you can hear uh, Paul's heart beating and pounding as he climbs that staircase. And finally he gets to the top and it's like he stands there and he just views what has taken place. He contemplates what has taken place and he just breaks forth in praise to God. Now when he gets to the top, there's nothing left it seems for him to do than just glorify uh, Jesus Christ. Just give God the glory. Nothing is left but to praise God at the end of this chapter. It's very interesting when you read commentary on this particular chapter because you come to these last two verses and in commentaries or in sermons that preachers preach, uh, you may see the title like this, Exultant Praise or Grand Praise, Great Doxology. And when we come to these last two verses of this chapter, that's what it is, a great, grand, glorious doxology. Doxology simply means a speech that glorifies God, and that's what Paul does. So Paul climbs the staircase, he reaches the top of the stairs, and then he stands there with these last two verses to contemplate how he got there. And I think that he would say, maybe not in these words in the last two verses, but I know that he would say, it's all by the grace of God. If you read the book of Ephesians and you miss grace, you have missed everything we've talked about. Grace is what this book is all about. A few months ago, you might remember that I read to you a quote from Robert Schuller. He said, The notion of sin is psychological self-abuse, is an act or thought that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem. Once a person believes he is an unworthy sinner... It is doubtful if he can really honestly accept the saving grace God offered in Christ Jesus. Then he says, classic theology has erred in its insistence to be God-centered and not man-centered. Folks, if you believe what Robert Schuller said in that statement, you might as well take the book of Ephesians and throw grace and everything that goes along with it right out of the window. The Apostle Paul would bristle if he ever stood toe-to-toe with a preacher who spit in the direction of God with a statement like that. All of the glory goes to God. And the Bible is God-centered, not man-centered. Now, this evening, I want us to examine these last two verses, and it is a grand doxology, a great doxology, an exultant doxology, 
And I want to consider the subject tonight, give God the glory. I'd like you to stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word. We want to do just a little bit differently tonight. We want to look at these two verses at the end of chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. I want to ask you to read those out loud with me, if you would, please. Verse number 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus through Throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for these great words that the Apostle Paul has given us here. And how, Lord, we do want to give you the glory. How we stand in awe and amazement at what you have done for us. And Lord, we just ask you that you'd bless the message tonight. May we leave this place thinking about the greatness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In your precious Son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure most of you probably recognize verse 21. I I know all of you have have read the book of Ephesians, but especially verse number 21, because very often at the end of my sermons, during the invitation time, I, I may make a remark like this, that Jesus Christ receives glory through the church. That is the place where Christ receives glory. And if there's no other reason why you would want to be a member of the Lord's church, it is for this fact that God receives glory, Christ receives glory through the New Testament church. God expects people who know him, who have come to know him as Savior, to be a part of his church. And God has put you on this earth for only one reason... And maybe you wonder what your purpose in life is, but God has put you on this earth for one reason, and that is to glorify God. And whatever it is in life that does not glorify God is useless. It's vain. It's good for nothing but to be burned up in the fires of hell. We are all put here for the purpose of glorifying God. Now, I want us to think about that thought tonight as we consider this subject, Give God the Glory. There are two reactions that you can have when you begin to read God's Word. When you honestly start to think about, contemplate, uh, just really study God's Word, there's one reaction, the first reaction that you have when you do that is you have a reaction of of a deep sense of humility, a deep sense of unworthiness as you read what we are before God, sinners that we are before God. But then as you read further you have a second reaction, and the second reaction is that you just give thrilling praise because of the Lord Jesus Christ who has given himself for such unworthy sinners as we are. In the beginning of chapter 2, we notice that Paul began there talking about how we are dead in trespasses and sin. He spoke about how we were children of wrath, even as others. He talked about how we lived according to the lust of the flesh. And inevitably, as you read chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 especially, you have to have that first reaction. I am an unworthy sinner. I don't deserve anything at the hand of God. But then we come down here to chapter 3, and we get to the last two verses of chapter 3, and then we're able to have the second reaction. And that's where we have this thrilling hope that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. By grace, Paul says, that we're saved. And we just thank the Lord for His marvelous grace. Two weeks ago, I spoke to you on the subject, At the Top of the Stairs. And that was a sermon that sort of ended those, uh, those prayer requests that Paul made here in chapter 3. And we talked about how each of those petitions was like a staircase. Each one, you climb higher and higher until you come to that verse where Paul says that you're filled with the fullness of God. Well, as we read these last two verses, 
we also find here a staircase because this is something is building and it finally builds up to where Paul wants to give all the praise and all the glory to Jesus Christ. Now this evening, I want to develop that thought as we start climbing another staircase that we find here in verses 20 and 21. First of all tonight, uh, step number one that we see in these verses is that God is able to do. Verse number 20, Paul starts out, Now unto him who is able to do. And the thing that immediately separates our God from all other gods is that he has the ability to do. God is able to do something. And folks, that ought to thrill your heart because our God is not a force of nature out here somewhere. Our God is not impersonal like many people believe. Our God is not a watchmaker God like we talked about a few weeks ago. But our God is a God who is interested in every single aspect of what takes place in this universe. Our God is a God of creation. Our God is a God who does something. And throughout the scriptures, we see that God is constantly being, Jehovah God is constantly being contrasted with false gods who are able to do nothing. Our God is a God of demonstration. He's a God of activity. And the classic example I think that we have is the story that all of you know, and that's when Elijah was on Mount Carmel. You remember how Elijah stood against the false prophets of Baal, the false god of Ahab and Jezebel. And we all know that story, that they went up there on Mount Carmel and there was going to be a contest to see whose god was the real god. And God was asked to do something. Both sides were going to ask their god to do something. Now what they were asking was that God would send down fire from heaven and consume the sacrifice. Well, those prophets of Baal... They prayed and they prayed. They pleaded and they begged. The Bible says they went so far to even cut themselves with stones, with knives or whatever. And, and they pleaded and begged for their God to send down fire night and day. I mean, all day long, I should say, until the nightfall. And their God was not able to do anything. There wasn't any response. But when Elijah prayed, he simply spoke one sentence, just one sentence. He said, Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and thou hast turned their heart back again. And that was one simple sentence, one simple prayer, and with that prayer, God demonstrated that he was able to do. God sent down fire from heaven. In Isaiah chapter 44, and this is a chapter you might want to read later, Isaiah talks about how men will take things and, and make themselves graven images. They'll build their idols, make their idols, and then those men will bow down for the things that they've made with their own hands. And people are still doing that today. But the question is, where is the demonstration of their gods? Where is the demonstration of the power of their God? Only Jehovah God has ever given us a demonstration of power. Where do you find miracles that other gods have done? I don't see any. But we do know this, Jehovah God is able to do. We serve a God who is able to do. And the ultimate power of God, Paul sums up in Romans chapter 8. He wrote this in verse 11. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by the spirit that dwelleth in you. I didn't read that verse of Scripture during the funeral service today, but that would have been a good one to read. Our mortal bodies will be quickened 
when Jesus comes back. Now, the greatest demonstration of God's power was not that he created the universe. I mean, that was an awesome display of power. God's most awesome display of power was not that he enabled Moses to part the Red Sea. And it wasn't that God was able to cause the sun to go backwards. None of those are God's greatest demonstration of power. The Bible teaches us that the greatest demonstration of God's power is when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he also tells us that it's much more personal than that even because the power of God, as I said just a moment ago, is able also to raise us from the dead if we believe in Jesus Christ. So we see throughout the Bible that God is always demonstrating his ability to do. With Elijah on Mount Carmel, that was an external demonstration of power. But again, God is more personal than that because in this text verse, at the end of verse 20, it says, according to the power that worketh in us. And the words in the first part of the verse, able to do, are actually from the same root word from which we get power in the last part of the verse. God's power is available in us so that we are also able to do. First Corinthians chapter 2, Paul said, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What is it that makes your faith different from that of Muslims? What makes your faith different from Buddhist? Or even what makes your faith different from nominal Christianity? It's this, that our God is able to do. And our God works in us. And in fact, men are able to do very uncommon things by the power of God. I only need to give you one small example, just a little thing. Anybody here ever tithe? Anybody ever give God their offerings and see how God is able to do? There's always a demonstration of God's power. So that's the first step. God is able to do. But then we come to the next step. Step number two is God is able to do what we ask. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask. Now the first part thing that we recognize in that part of the verse is that God is not somewhere on the backside of the universe. God is not out there somewhere concerned only with things that he has to do and so concerned with that that he doesn't know anything at all about what we're doing. God is able to do what we ask him. I mean, have you ever thought about how busy that God is? I mentioned this in a sermon, I think on Sunday morning, just a few weeks ago. But, but God uh, is able to, to listen to the prayers of millions of people. I mean, hundreds and thousands and millions of people that come up to him at the same time. People all over the world at any given minute are praying to God and God is able to separate out every single petition that's made as if it's the only one that was ever made. Tonight, when we looked over our prayer page, we have all kinds of people on our prayer list, many names of many different people. We have different prayer petitions that need to be made. And as we make each one of those, God is able to treat that like that's the only prayer that came to him today. God is so individual or so individualized, individualizes this that he is able to do exactly what we ask him to do. So our God does and he does what we ask. I want you to understand something about this verse because this is a promise of prayer, a promise about prayer. I mean, if you need any, any proof about prayer, here's a verse, a proof text about prayer right here. 
But although God can do what we ask, what we ask is not always in God's will. And there's some warnings in Scripture about asking for things that are not in God's will. In James chapter 4, verse 3, James gave a warning. He said, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon his, on your lust. But did you know this? For every verse of Scripture in the Bible that gives us a warning about asking for things that we shouldn't ask for, there are ten Scriptures that tell us that we need to ask God with confidence. He says, keep on praying. He says that you can ask Him for things. Jesus told us to pray with confidence. There's a favorite verse that I have that the Apostle John wrote. And in a time of distress, about 20 years ago, I wrote this verse and these two verses in the front of my Bible. 1 John chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him... Because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. I mean, have you ever wondered where you could get a formula for praying with confidence? John actually gives us a formula right here. He says, here's how you can pray with confidence. Let me point out to you two things, or three things rather, very quickly, that John shows us in these verses that that enable you to pray with confidence. Number one is to pray with a clear conscience, being open and honest with God. And what that means is when you come to God, you confess your sins to Him. You you let Him know what you've done. You tell Him that you are an unworthy sinner. I mean, you lay it out before Him. You pray with a clear conscience and be open and honest with God. Number two, do what God's Word commands us to do. That's also in those verses that John gave us. Do what God has commanded. Keep the commandments. And Jesus said that. Keep my commandments. Number three, seek to please God in every possible way. As you keep His commandments, try to do things that you know will please God, things that the Word of God reveals that will please Him. And if you do those three things, you can have confidence. Pray with a clear conscience, being open and honest with God. Do what God's Word commands us to do. Seek to please God in every possible way. Follow those three things, and you have every reason to be confident in your prayers. Then we come to step number three that Paul gives us in these verses. Step three is that God is able to do all we ask. Now, God gives us what we ask, and His power extends to all that we ask. And what that means is that there's nothing that's impossible to God. Now, I want you to notice a little extra tidbit that Paul throws in here, because he says God can do all that we ask, and, and listen to this, he says all that we think. And that's not an insignificant or a trivial statement. Sometimes we stop short of praying for what we think. Now, we pray with confidence over things that we are sure are in God's will. Let me give you an example. You can pray with confidence that God would make you a better witness. You don't have any problem praying a prayer like that. You know that has to be in God's will. I mean, His Word reveals that. So you know that you can pray for to become a better witness, and, and that's in God's will, so you can be confident about that kind of prayer. You can be confident when you ask God to help you to tithe, or when you ask God to help you attend church more faithfully. You don't have any problem praying a prayer like that. You have confidence in those kinds of prayers. But the Bible is teaching us here also that God is able to do the things that we think as well. So sometimes we might be holding back uh, because things that we think about, we think may be impossible. 
Our limitation in our prayers is over things that we think are possible. We take about, well, think about money issues, for instance. How could I possibly tithe when I have all these bills? I mean, I add up the list and I can't pay my bills this month. How can I possibly tithe? God does the impossible. You have to trust him. We think about how could we possibly put new carpet in our building? How can we possibly do upgrades to our church? How can we do that? How can we put all this tile in? How's it possible? It's here, isn't it? It's all possible because God works in the realm of impossibilities. Think about it for a moment. What do you need God for? What do you need him for if everything that you ask is in the realm of human possibility? You don't need God for that. I'm reminded of what Jesus taught his disciples. He said, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And we all understand that this was when Jesus was uh, speaking about a rich man who came to him. And this rich man extolled all of his virtues. He told how he always kept the laws of Moses. These things, he said, I've kept from my youth up. And Jesus said, you know, that's not the thing. I mean, if you, if you know what he's talking about, Jesus is saying, that's not the thing that saves you. And he proved that by telling him to go sell everything that he had and give it to the poor. His disciples were listening to this and they thought, wow. You mean a person who keeps all the laws of Moses? I mean, keeps all of that perfectly? All from his youth up, he's kept all the laws of Moses. He can't be saved? Who can be saved then? And that's when Jesus said, With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So God doesn't stop with just what we ask. He's able to do all that we ask. Nothing is outside the realm of God's possibilities. But then we don't stop there because there's still another step. Step number four is that God is able to do more than we ask. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. You ever prayed to God and you got more than you asked? That ever happened to you? Five years ago, I was traveling back and forth to Florida. Those of you who been here a while, you remember this. I was traveling back in Florida and I asked God to put me in a church where I could do more. Ta-da! You ask God and sometimes he overwhelms you when he does more than you ask. You know, when I first became the pastor, I asked that God would allow me to be accepted as a new pastor. You know, for the first year or two, I wondered if that could ever happen. There were people who left the church. You know, there were people, fortunately, or praise, not fortunately, providentially. There were people who came into the church as people were exiting the church. But, you know, I'm the kind of person who likes to be liked. I mean, I'm just, that's just the way I am. I want to treat people the way that, that I want to be treated. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I like for people to like me, and, and uh, I want to treat them as well as they treat me. I want to give back, and I hope that you're the same type of person. But I wondered about whether God was ever going to make me accepted. But then I found out that God is able to do more than we ask because I couldn't have asked for what I got. I couldn't have asked for what God has done for me now. I go to bed at night. I wake up in the morning thinking about how God is so good to me. How God has done so much more than I ask him to do. People in our church do things for me. Sometimes I get embarrassed because I'm not able to give back in the same measure that people give to me. But then when I think about that, I think, well, that's just God doing more than I ask. And people are being blessed 
as they do things for me. And I thank the Lord for that. So do you wonder why that Paul just stood back in amazement when he got to these last two verses and he thought about how good is God? Praise God. I mean, I can't do anything but praise God. It reminds me of uh, Brother Wilson Maungu in Kenya. You remember the story I told you when he was here and he heard the news that a lady had given $5,000 to his orphanage and all he could do was sit there and say, God is so good. God is so good. And over and over again, he sat there and said, God is so good. But let me go back to this thought again. God does more than we think. Now, sometimes our prayers as we pray become muddled. I mean, we become so burdened over things that not only can't we ask God for them, but in our minds, we can't even articulate what we want to say. I mean, we're just so burdened that we can't even tell God what we want to tell him. Do you know the Bible has an answer for that? Listen to what Romans 8 says, verse number 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself or himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. I want you to listen to what W.A. Criswell said about this. And I thought this was so good. I just had to read this to you tonight. He said, among the benefits of adoption into God's family is the special supernatural care bestowed by the Holy Spirit upon the child of God. The Holy Spirit is present within the Christian to assist him in those moments of moral, physical, or emotional weakness. Frequently, a disciple confronts difficulties so insurmountable that he cannot even approach prayer skillfully. He knows that he must approach God, but he has already said all that he knows to say to God. In those instances, the promise is that the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Some have interpreted this verse as arguing for prayer tongues. However, close examination reveals that the believer is not speaking at all. The Holy Spirit is making intercession. Literally, the words might be rendered unspoken sighings. In other words, the communication is nonverbal, involving no speaking of any kind. Isn't that something? Think about this, that God is able to read your unspoken thoughts. Jesus said, For your Father knoweth the things that you have need of before you ask him. Now, you see, folks, we could stop right there, I think, and we could think, well, how can we possibly go any higher? I mean, for what more could we praise God? I mean, we can't go any higher than this, can we? It's a great, grand, exultant doxology if we stop right here. But we find that Paul's heart swells even more, and he gives us another step, because step number five is that God is able to do much more than we ask. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now, the word that Paul uses here for exceedingly abundantly is one of these words that Paul made up. You see, whenever Paul came to a a thought that he couldn't express in words, when there was no word to express it, Paul created his own words. And they become Bible words. And that's what he did right here with the words exceedingly abundantly. This is actually a Greek word found in this scripture that's found no other place in classical Greek except one place. And you know where it is? 1 Thessalonians 3.10. Who wrote 1 Thessalonians 3.10? The Apostle Paul. So he coins his own word. 
to give us the idea of what he's talking about here. Well, when does God do more or exceedingly more, abundantly more than what we ask or think? Well, let's look at an example. We go back to the Old Testament and we think about Abraham. Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees and God told him to go to a place that he didn't know where he was going. And God said, I want you to go and you're going to possess this land. Then God said to Abraham, he said, I'm going to multiply your seed and your children will become as the stars of the heavens for multitude, as the sands of the sea for multitude. And that was God's promise to Abraham. But Abraham became a very old man. And Abraham and Sarah didn't have any children. Abraham was a hundred years old. Sarah was 90 years old and they had no children. Now, I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but you know that, that God did a miracle. He enabled them to have a child, and that child was Isaac. But Abraham was continually blessed because Isaac, that's just one child. I mean, you can't call that a multitude. Some of you may have children that are a handful, but that's not a multitude. And Abraham did not have a multitude of children at this point. But by the time we get to Genesis chapter 25, Abraham has at least six children. And with six children come grandchildren. And if you live to be 175 years old, you're probably going to have some great-grandchildren and some great-great-grandchildren too. There's a story in the Bible about Abraham. You may remember that, that he went to fight against four kings. And Abraham was able to muster an army out of his own family and his servants of 300 men. Well, now we're starting to get somewhere, aren't we? I mean, now it's, it's kind of looking up here. I mean, that's, that's a pretty good entourage. Well, finally, of course, through Isaac and then through Jacob, the descendants of Abraham began to multiply. On the other side, you have Ishmael over here, who is not the son of promise, but he's still a son of Abraham. And on that side, they're multiplying too. And so you come down today and you have a world that's filled with the descendants of Abraham. I think that's probably more than Abraham could ask. But God did much more than Abraham could ask. Because I want you to go back and think about Isaac for just a minute. Who is one of the best types of Jesus Christ that's found in the Old Testament? You know who it is? Isaac. Isaac became a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may wonder, well, why Isaac? I mean, why, what, what made him so special? Well, of course, he was a son of promise. And Jesus Christ, when he came to the world, he was also God's son of promise. But there's something peculiar about Isaac as far as all the other patriarchs in the Old Testament are concerned. And that is that Isaac is the only one of them who dedicated himself to only one wife. And that was Rebekah. And you know what that became? Or what Rebekah became? She became a type of the Lord's church. He only married one wife and she became a type of the Lord's church. So here's how God blessed Abraham exceedingly abundantly above what he could ask. He gave him a son who became a type of the greatest person who ever lived. He, who, the son of God. Isaac was a type of the son of God. How could you ever ask for that? God gave him much more than he could ask, exceedingly abundantly. Does God ever bless you exceedingly abundantly? Do you ever come to the place where the only thing that you can do is just swell up and give God praise? Because he's blessed you exceedingly abundantly. You know, I think that there would be more Christians who, who would feel like that if they climbed that staircase that we talked about the few last, over the last few weeks. If you start putting all those stair steps together until finally you came filled with the fullness of God, there'd be a lot more times 
that you would break forth into praise for what God has done for you. So you can't help but do that. When God blesses you exceedingly abundantly what you're expecting, you can't help it but flow forth with praises. And that's what Paul does here. He can't contain himself. He says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Now as we read those verses, we, we think finally tonight, would you think that Paul has no real frame of reference for this in his own life? I mean, we can talk about Abraham and Isaac. We could use the example of Moses and how that God took Moses from the backside of the universe and he made him Israel's greatest deliverer. We could talk about David, young shepherd boy, and yet God made him Israel's greatest king. But what about Paul? I mean, what's his frame of reference for thinking about how God does exceedingly abundantly above what we ask or think? Well, let's use his own words. Let's think about how he described himself. I want you to turn to 1 Timothy for just a moment. And Paul describes what he was before he came to know Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul, of course, is always talking about God's grace. We've been studying the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings, and if John is the apostle of love, Paul's called the apostle of grace. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 12. He says, And I thank God, or I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, rather, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and injurious. But I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Now look at verse 14. And the grace of, God, of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Now he goes on to verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And so Paul has his own version of God doing exceedingly abundantly above all that he could ask or think. Christ not only saved him, but what did he do for Paul? He made him the world's greatest missionary. He made him the world's greatest preacher. So Paul has a frame of reference for this. But let me finish up with this thought, though. And you can write this down for yourself tonight. This is all available for me. It's all available for me. Abraham was a great man of the faith. And whenever you read about faith in the Bible, Abraham is almost always mentioned. David was a great man of the faith. He's the only person that the Bible said that he had a heart for God. A man after God's own heart. Elijah was a great man of faith. Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind chariot of fire. He never tasted death. Paul was a great man of the faith. I mean, he wrote the major part of the New Testament. Those were all great men. But the question that you might want to ask this evening is, might I be an Abraham? Is it possible for me to be David? Can I be Moses? Can I be Elijah? Could I be the Apostle Paul? And you know the answer is right here in our text verses, in verse number 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, listen, according to the power that worketh in us. And who's the us? It's Paul. It's the Ephesians that he's writing to. And friend, it's you and me. It's you and me. The same power is available to us if we are the children of God. So what more can be said than that? Only one thing, give God the glory. 
One writer said it this way, the power comes from him and the glory must go to him. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. I say amen. You can say amen right there. Amen. Give him the glory. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for the grace of God. We thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ who came into the world to save sinners. And Lord, we can't do anything but stand in amazement and give you the glory for that. And then not only that you saved us, but also you're able to do all of these things. You're able to do what we ask. You're able to do more than we ask. You're able to do much more than we ask. And you even do more than we can even think about. And we just thank you, Lord, and praise you for all that you've done for us. Bless us in this invitation time tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.